Welcome to episode 100 on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, with my co-host, Andy Dolich, and we've got the special privilege of today's guest in Brian Blair, Chief Operating Officer at Washington State University Athletics. And we're really excited to not only, you know, Andy, it's, it's 100 episodes, holy cow, but but Brian, um, it's only fitting that you're on and, and you know, you... Uh, have accomplished some amazing things already in your career and only going to accomplish more. Um, but we're really excited to dive into a little bit of college athletics with you, as well as uh, your path to where you've gotten to today. So nonetheless, Brian, welcome to oh, the podcast. Thank you both for having me on. I think the, the phrase, you've done some amazing things, um, may get some sneers from some of my coworkers currently, um, but I appreciate the kind <laughs> words nonetheless. Well, Brian, as you know, being in a lot of different audiences, people define amazing in different ways, right? <laughs> like one of one of my least favorite words these days is that's interesting. Of course, nobody knows what that means. But um, what we all what we love to do at the beginning of every session, and Jake, a uh, hundred, wow, a hundred. Um, and we just started last week. That's really amazing. <laughs> that, that we were able to fast forward. But where we uh, like to get our listeners interested in is career path. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to start when you were three years old, but sort of that moment, that aha moment, like, wow, a career in the business of sports, what might that be like? Do, do you remember that? Or if you don't, um, what has been your GPS to get to the point that you're at today? I do. I, I certainly remember that. I, I was in um, my second year of law school, and I was sitting in uh, entertainment law class, not sports law, entertainment law. And the professor at the time represented a number of musical groups alike. Um, and then he started talking. And he went off on a little bit of tangent, which he was a little known to do. Um, but he talked a little bit about being a sports agent and working in sports. Um, so then my, he piqued my interest. And I started thinking, wow, um, I had seen Jerry Maguire. I know something about it. I played college football, getting a law degree. There may be something here. So I followed that up and took a sports law class. And in the sports law class, we just went through um, a lot of pro sports, but definitely touched on college. And one of the things that started popping up, I started hearing about the role of the AD and how the athletic director was involved in different areas and got to deal um, with a lot of different topics. Um, and then we started, I started diving in a little bit more. I'd, I'd sit in the law school lobby and I'd hop on my computer and rather than doing the homework that I was assigned or other things, <laughs> I, I, was, I was way more focused on, yeah. let me Google this AD. So I Google an AD, I pull up their bio, um, and then I do a rundown of their background and I start retracing the steps. Okay, uh, this AD graduated from this place and went to this master's program or this law school. And then their first job out of law school was this job. And then after that, they transitioned to this. So I started working backwards on all those career paths to get to that ultimate end goal. Um, and then I said, a light bulb went off. This is what I want to do. Um, being, being a college football student athlete, I know what the student athlete experience was like for me and how impactful it was. Um, and then you pair that with my law school education and where I was. And I didn't really have a huge appetite to practice law. Um, so those two kind of came together. So sitting in that classroom, that, that light bulb went off second year of law school. And from that standpoint on, I've been on a journey uh, to work in college athletics and, and try to replicate 
the experience I have for future generations. So, Jake, I think you've heard this before. I'm, I'm not sure Brian has, but I, I had a similar circumstance, but with a different result. So at American University a long time ago, um, when I took my law boards, because I figured I was a government major, international politics, but when I received the third lowest law board marks in the Northeast <laughs> quadrant of the United States, I quickly realized, unlike Brian, like law school, probably not. And uh, that's when I first heard of the Ohio University program. And that's absolutely true. It was like, uh, wow, I'm glad a test showed me that I wouldn't have been able to do that. And Brian, you, you hit on a point we all have so many colleagues that really have gone to law school and have gone into the law firm or practice themselves. And what they sort of realized after a while is like, I, I'm not necessarily in love with the law, but I'm in love with transactions. I'm in love with, I'm in love with uh, interaction of people and I'm just guessing that's sort of what the flashing green light was for you. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny. If you take a step back, the whole reason I was in law school um, at my undergraduate at Wofford, uh, we had a program called interim where you have your two main semesters. But during the month of January, you take one course for that entire month. It's a three hour credit. But really, it's what it's meant to do in terms of the liberal arts education is really expose you to a lot of areas you wouldn't otherwise get exposure to. So you could do everything um, from a semester of learning all the expertise and history behind fly fishing. You could learn how to weld, like all these different things that a history major like me wouldn't learn in otherwise. Um, but I took one of those uh, interim semesters and followed a lawyer around, a local lawyer. He's a sole practitioner, owned his own firm. And I got to see him more or less be an entrepreneur and set his own hours, set his own day, set his own direction. And that excited something inside of me. My, my, my dad's an entrepreneur by trade. My brother's an entrepreneur. Um, so I've got that spirit in me, but I also wanted to combine it with my passion for sports. Um, and, and sports has done so much for my life. It's always been a constant. So I, I saw the reason why I got into law school was I saw that entrepreneurial spirit. I said, hey, if that's my backup plan, then that, I feel pretty good about that. Then I can go out and explore all these other different areas. So I went into law school thinking, okay, that may be the backup plan. Let me figure out where I want to right. otherwise. And then when I got to the law school and discovered sports, maybe an opportunity to, to do something I'm passionate about, because I, I believe that's, that's, how you, that's how you do something truly remarkable. Find your passion huh. and stay with it. And by being able to combine those two worlds, that's how I kind of ended up here today. And so, Brian... Brian, from an, from an entrepreneur standpoint, compliance isn't necessarily entrepreneurial, <laughs> is it? You know, you've got, you've got, you've got quite a few amount of rules. You've got a, you know, a big thick book, right. That comes out. I mean, and you got to follow that to a T uh, to protect, you know, the, the athletes, the university uh, administration, et cetera. What drew you to compliance being the entrepreneurial spirit uh, that you have. Yeah, that's a funny question because I think if you're too entrepreneurial and compliant, you're going to find yourself on the front page of something. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not lying with the compliance yeah. and, so I and you're to, gone. I tried to avoid being too entrepreneurial in that space. But honestly, when I got into, when I was in law school and I started reaching out to athletic departments um, for internships or the like, 
everybody, I think, just saw a law degree and automatically said, hey, go talk to compliance, go talk to compliance, go talk to compliance. And I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what it was or where is that. I just, all I knew is everybody reached out to me, told me, go to this department. They may have something for you. And I wasn't getting bites otherwise. So I said, hey, this is what I need to do. So I uh, was at the University of South Carolina for law school. I reached out to their athletic department. Funny enough, I, I didn't get an email back, I think, the first three or four times. I called or emailed. So I reached back out to my AD at Wofford, who then made a call on my behalf to get somebody to say, hey, um, at least give this guy a couple minutes and talk to him about what he's trying to do. And from there, I was able to take that internship and run with it. Um, I I can't say, Jake, to be honest with you, that I I loved um, my career in compliance. It never was a huge um, joy of mine in particular. I think it's a hard deal um, to be um, in the department enforcing rules, but also be a teammate. But what I will say is I think compliance – because of that hardship makes you a better administrator or a better staff member. Because if you can figure out how to form relationships with people and maintain those relationships on top of telling them no, on top of watching out for what they're doing or double checking their work, then I I think if you get into any other space, it's pretty easy to navigate those relationships. So I I think from that standpoint, I'm blessed to have started my career in compliance. If I had to do it all over again, would I say that was my love and joy and and I love that world? No. Um, but it allowed me to get my foot in the door and then from there start doing other things in the athletic department that maybe I enjoyed a little bit more, um, knowing that compliance is a vital part of what we do and really part of everybody's responsibility. But the day-to-day work just wasn't my favorite. And that's a perfect point for, I think, further explanation um, or complying with the parameters of this particular podcast. Notice what I did. Yeah. But uh, as you talk to, as we talk to a number of people in the professional area and you look at the business development side of the pros, so you have an owner who's a multi-billionaire, you've got the team side coach, GM, the metrical analysts, and then you have the business side, the revenue producers. I, I believe there's a number, and I mean, you've got, you've got a C-level title in an athletic department, correct? Say that one more time, Mindy. You have a C-level title in an athletic department, you know, so there's chief this officer, chief compliance officer, chief revenue officer that you find a lot in the pros, but many people would look at the collegiate side and go, okay, I know the AD, I know the coaches in multiple sports from 20 to 40, depending on the university or college, um, but what does everybody else do? You know, where associate AD, right? That was the that was the title that everybody would use. Can you spend a moment just talking from your school or the experience in in the conference? How many different significant positions are there on the business side or revenue generating side of a significant collegiate athletic program? Yeah, and, and I would say the same thing. I mean, when I played, I, I didn't know anything about athletic department or who did what all i knew is there was an ad that i figured was everybody's boss i knew my coach was my boss um and that was about the extent i knew about the athletic department i think once you get your foot in and that's why starting in compliance was so important because you get your foot in the door and then you start seeing this entire world of all the things that have to happen behind the scenes for that game to go off saturday or for that soccer match to go off on that night um or for just the student athlete experience to be what it is um so i think in general terms when you break down an athletic department, you've got your AD um, that reports to the president who oftentimes reports to a board of trustees or board of regents. Um, but coming down from the AD, usually he has his or her senior staff 
their senior team. And I think that's very similar to what you see in a lot of pro organizations where you've got that senior level um, of administrators, whether it be marketing or whether it be sponsorships or the like. I think the difference on the college side is that we've got so many more stakeholders than what you see on the business side. I was absolutely. Yes. Not even close. When I spent some time with IMG, I'd tell people like, hey, all I had to do in the pros was be yelled at by some megalomaniac billionaire. Um, And yes, I had the league and yes, I might have had the building. But in college, you could have a minimum of 20 constituencies just on campus, not including the NCAA, the conference, the state, if you're a public institution. It's complicated. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's almost, I mean, you're darn if you do, darn if you don't. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's impossible to please everybody, but that, that's what your job is. Um, as an AD or senior level administrator, you've got all these different pieces uh, pulling at you, and you got to do what's right by everybody. So you try to set priorities. I think for us, our priority is always the student-athlete first. Um, and from there, it gets complicated, quite frankly. I mean, whether it be the fan base, the alumni, the president's office, the board, um, your coaching staff members, your other staff members. I mean, the, the community, there's a lot there. I was reading, um, somebody recommended me the Master in the Rockefeller ha- Habits um, by Vern Harnish. And I, I was reading through, and, and you come across this conversation about customers, and, and that's the, the main focus for many businesses. For us, I mean, I, I was going through my head last night of trying to find, okay, who is our customer? And I, I could probably come up with five different definitions depending on the situation. Um, so I think that's the piece that differentiates um, the college space from what you see on the pro. But to me, that also makes it fun um, because we get to serve those different communities and or groups. I, I think it keeps your days exciting. Um, it keeps you on your toes. And it's what makes college sports special, right? I mean, right. the band, the cheerleaders, the student sections, those type of things add a lot to the college space. That fandom. that yeah it's, all, yeah, it's multiple sports yeah. and it's men and women and it's the student body and on and on. If we could stay topical for a second, I was mentioning to Jake before you jumped on that I drove past the Princess cruise ship three hours ago as it was docking in Oakland. So without getting into the absolute details, but you represent a large institution in a state that is affected significantly. You're in a conference. You have multiple health constituencies. What is the general sort of overview that everyone is now speaking about as it relates to the future of all of these events, how big is that footprint of people that need to be involved in the decision-making process? Yeah, I mean, you hit on something that's very topical. I've probably spent, I mean, if I've been at work four or five hours a day, I've spent probably two, two and a half just on that topic alone. I mean, that didn't include last week and over the weekend, the calls that I had to have. Um, I mean, because it's, it's very real right now. I think the, the, the majority of the diagnosed cases um, are on the west side of the state. We're located in Pullman on the eastern side of the state. So um, while being very, very vigilant, it hadn't um, infected this community as much as maybe is to be seen. Um, but I, I think to, you touch on a huge point. I mean, right now, what pl- plans is the university making from a, a class standpoint, online learning? Um, when you take out or you, you take a campus offline, like where we live in a college town, then that, that's a huge uh, divide amongst the businesses in town. I mean, they, they depend on their revenue for the college, so that's huge for them. 
I think for our students, and most importantly, uh, as we talk about student athletes, I mean, to me, this is one of those scenarios where sports kind of falls at the bottom of the list um, in terms of priority. And we focus on our students first. We lean on the university heavily from that standpoint as far as what policies and procedures. For us, as we think about, okay, the other two groups that we have aside from the university, we're hosting events. I mean, we just had a four-game baseball series at home. We just had a tennis match at home. And we'll have more coming up this spring. What do those look like? What's the national trend line? I mean, I know you saw – um, Italy and some others start closing down events. Where do we fall on that? So I, I hesitate to to say, hey, we're definitively doing this because this thing changes hour by hour. We're just more staying vigilant, staying in contact with CDC. I'm leaning on the university heavily uh, for their expertise as far as what we should do from a student standpoint. And then from an athlete standpoint, what are we doing for our athletes that are traveling to competition? And then what are we doing for the competitions that we do have? Well, um, again, the level of complexity in all sport, not just, you know, in your situation in a state, in a country, uh, you know, what are the Olympics going to do? This, you know, this gets down to where we started in terms of if you don't have any capability to deal with details, you're going to have a challenge. I mean, we we talked about something as simple as, some of these postseason tournaments that we're looking to sign contracts for our teams to participate in. Well, now we've got to look at those contracts and say, okay, is there an out? Should campus be closed? Like those are things you don't normally think yeah. about, or at least we haven't thought about, but you saw South by Southwest, I think I'm thinking through their clause for canceling. I mean, these are very real things in the, the sports entertainment space that we need to be cognizant of because they get huge financial dividends. That's that's yeah. the lawyer right there. Speaking. <laughs> you got to look at the yeah, all these loans are paying off. thinking of every possible clause. <laughs> Well, hey, I mean, Brian, while we're on that topic of contracts and, um, you know, complexity of decisions, you, you know, we were talking uh, earlier in the month about, um, you know, the process of hiring a a new coach, right? And whether that's uh, an Olympic sport, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, regardless, there's still, you know, a complex decision in terms of how much are they going to get paid? Where are they coming from? Who is it? Right. Who's involved in the, in the decision making process? How soon? I mean, all those things. Right. There, there's probably more factors than even I just named. But can you kind of walk us through your experience and uh, the complexity of what a you know hiring a coach um, looks like, not only at the collegiate level, but within a major, you know, major program yeah, as well? I, I mean, frankly, I think this is the most important thing we do in college athletics um, because our coaches shape the experience for our student athletes. They are the the front person or the spokesperson on behalf of the department. Oftentimes, many times they're the highest paid or one of the highest paid employees in the state. I mean, this is the most important thing we do. I mean, here at Washington State, we, our ADs hired five coaches in the last two years. Um, I've been a part of the last three that we've done for baseball, men's basketball, and football. Um, and I, I think, I mean, it, it kind of boils down to two things for me. I, I think my saying always is stay ready so you don't have to get ready. I mean, I, when our football coach left, I had a number of people text me, oh, what are you going to do, all those kind of things. And I shot back the same response to every single one of them, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And that boils down to having a, a profile and having a plan. I, I think you've got to have a profile of what fits your institution and what, what will be successful at your institution. And I think you're doing that homework every day. Every interaction you have, every conversation with a student athlete, every event you have in town, you're, you're learning more about the place you reside and what may be successful. Because they, as Andy touched on a little bit earlier, because we have so many stakeholders, so many people have a piece um, or have an effect on your level of success or lack thereof. It's maybe not like some other institutions or organizations where you don't have to worry about recruiting, you don't have to worry about community relations as much, some of those type of things. I mean, being a college coach and, and 
it, you're so involved in so many different aspects and pulled in so many different directions. So I think having a clear profile boiled down to really simplistic terms of what will be successful, because what you notice when you get in these searches, you get halfway in and then you have a million agents reaching out, a million friends reaching out, telling you who you should hire. And you'll get really distracted by the flashy name. So you'll start off on a search and somebody will say, hey, have you thought about so-and-so? I hear they're interested. And then you'll spend two or three days chasing your tail on somebody that may not even be interested in your job or may not be a good fit for your job if you don't have a solid profile. Um, and which, which brings up the other point, both in the pros and college or even youth sports, we, those of us in the business, don't necessarily consider that there are millions of people of which sport is not part of their lives. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it, but it's just not. And I always think there's a sign near the Haas Business School at UC Berkeley, um, and I nearly parked in it, but it says, this spot reserved for Nobel Prize winners. I swear wow. this is the truth. <laughs> this spot reserved for Nobel Prize winners, of which, you know, UC Berkeley and many, and I went, and I'm not saying that that Nobel Prize winner wasn't a big, you know, rugby yeah. fan at Cal, but like, uh, okay, that puts me in a, a different frame of reference that a university with tens of thousands of men and women and professors and adjuncts and everybody else, you also have to concern yourself with we're a part of this community. And in some cases, they view it like, oh, we're sport. We control this community. Like, yeah. get a grip. I'd say right? we're also what came for sure. And I, I know your situation in Berkeley, and it's very similar to my, my, my situation when I was at Rice University. Very high academic achievement. Very, a lot of laudable alumni. Um, but a lot of people make the mistake of hiring the coach that's best for them rather than the coach that's best for their organization or team. And I, I think that's a right. critical mistake I've seen people make, and I've tried not to make it or be a part of making it since I've been here because you can hire what you like from, let's say, a football coach. I like a coach that does this. I like a coach that, that does this like Bear Bryant and does this like this person. But you need to hire the person that's the best fit for your institution or your organization at the time they're there because every institution is different at every segment and who they follow matters, who they proceed, all those kind of things um, matter. I had a, a mentor of mine, Joe Cargar, the AD at Rice, and he kind of gave me this criteria and it stuck with me. Um, first, you want to say, what do others say about that person? What is the network, their informal interactions? Because I think you're interviewing for your next job every day. So outside of that hour, you're uh -huh. sitting, when you're sitting across from me, putting your best front on, what other people say about you that have been around you and been around you and you've had success and you've struggled the life? Um, second in there, that's what you've done, your resume, your wins and losses, those kind of things. And then last is what you say, what you say in that interview session. And when he gave me that, I think that really spells it out really clearly how you conduct an interview or what you look for in that interview, because you can get so wrapped up in that 30 minute to hour uh, presentation. And then you get two, three years down the line with that person. You realize, wow, I made the wrong decision because I based that decision on what was done the hour rather than what was done the 10 years before they got to me. Um, so there's just little nuggets like that to make it easier. And that's what's so great about a university, almost no matter where it is, that it represents everything. You come up with an explanation, it's yeah. represented. So in, in a unpaid commercial, if you could talk a bit about uh, where I think we first met in the BDSE cohort at the National Sports Forum, the Business of Diversity in Sports and Entertainment, 
I think it's a perfect door opener to the opportunities that are available literally to anyone who wants to do the work in the world of sports. Could you uh, walk down that path a little bit for the listeners, what it meant to you and, and how you deal with it every day in in a complex environment in the university. Yeah, world. I mean, I, I was fortunate to go. Uh, Christina Wright at Ohio recommended I apply for the BDSE cohort. I guess that was five or so years ago. And um, I, I, I went through it. I didn't know a lot about it, but I, I heard good things. I knew it'd get me out of my comfort zone. And then since then, I've tried to be a part of it every year since because it's really blown my mind um, with the people, the quality of individuals involved, what it represents as far as diversifying um, sports in general, regardless whether it be pro or college. Um, but also selfishly, I want to expand my network and I want to expand my network with people that are performing at the very, very highest level. And I think BDSE gives me a chance to do that. And I think that's, that's really unique because as, as you grow and as you learn, I mean, I talk about the importance of network when hiring a coach, but it's the same for hiring staff members, your senior team around you. I mean, one day I hope to be an athletic director and I hope to be able to hire a senior team. Well, who am I pulling those individuals from? Um, I'd love to have that diverse network to be able to pull from. And I think, I think, and this is patting myself a little bit on the back here, but Andy, you and I, and the rest of the committee, I think the program that we put together, um, one brings that group closer together and makes them think about some things maybe they hadn't thought about before, but also exposes them to a network and, and a program and in the broader NSF that they wouldn't otherwise have gotten. I, I agree. And, and uh, you pointed it out that this year's, this past cohort, if you said, wow, if I was applying with them, I'd just use myself. Like, there's no way I'd be selected. I mean, the level of quality each year uh, gets more and more. And if anybody has a question, just go to National Sports Forum and read a bit about BDSC, the business of diversity in sports and entertainment. I'll tell you everything you need to know. Jake, back to you. <laughs> Thanks for the commercial, Andy. Um, so, Brian, I, I mean – Look, you've you touched on the coaches piece, um, and I want to actually, as we kind of finish out that coaches, uh, you know, comment and topic, uh, I want to combine it with Andy's commercial in, in the diversity side of things and how important that might uh, be a factor in a university selection, right, and what the university stands for, et cetera, and having diverse pool candidates, um, not only from, a, from an experience standpoint, uh, but also, you know, leadership, et cetera. I mean, can you just talk a little bit about what goes into the search in the sense of um, polling candidates, whether it's all across the country or from within the conference or with or from within the team that you already have? Yeah, I, well, I, I think the running joke in athletics is every AD's got this short list in their desk, and if something were to happen, they just go to the short list, who's available, boom, it's done. And it's not quite that simple. I mean, I, I know a lot of ADs, they, they kind of rebuff that concept of, it's not worth having a short list because the, the world we work in changes so quickly and is so dynamic um, that you just need to know what you need to look for and then be prepared to act on it. So I think for us, yeah, you've got probably a handful of names. I mean, for me, I, I kind of keep a, a, a running list of who I think or I heard really good things about or keep an eye on. I use social media for that as well. Um, and just try to pay attention to the market and know who's out there because you just never know what may happen. And we were a prime example. Um, I, I, I had no thoughts or, or, or wasn't of the thought um, that, that Mike would leave when he left for the job he left for, but it happened. And luckily um, we were in a state of mind where we were prepared to act, but 
Um, When you build out that list, I think one of the hard parts right now for many of us, and this is an indictment on our industry and and many industries, um, is trying to find diverse candidates and make diverse hires and make hires that look like many student athletes that are competing for the university or look like myself. Um, And I I think that's a challenge right now. I, I think we as an industry have got to do a better job of that, but we also got to do a better job of preparing that next generation and putting them in positions to be successful. I think right now, a lot of times when you say, if you're hiring a football coach, okay, everybody says, well, you got to hire an office coordinator. You got to have somebody as a quarterback's coach um, or a line coach. Well, truth be told, if you look at the statistics um, on those positions that lead to be an office coordinator, they're not terribly diverse. So in, in many ways on that front, we've got a pipeline problem. I think the NFL's, pointing out some of those same type of things. So how do we put those people in success to, to be able to, or in positions to be successful to make that next step? And I think that's something, hopefully I, I get a chance to play a part in um, these next years of my career of changing that national landscape and changing that dialogue and making sure from the ground up, we're building something that allows people to step into those roles where they're able to go from that role to be in the head coach position. Um, but we've got a lot of work to do. And one of the, you know, Jake just, uh, as Brian was talking, one of the subliminal points of that is on the business side of generating revenue, these young men and women of massive levels of capability and diversity go, wait a second, you want me to work in sports where I'm going to make one quarter of the money that I could make in another business? See you later. I'm, you know, and, and that is a challenge that doesn't get thought about a lot um, because it is not a high paying industry, especially when you're yeah. getting started. And so the industry loses a number of the best and brightest who go, I am good. I am smart. And I'll take this amount of money as opposed to your amount. Of money. Jake, I think, you, I mean, Andy hit on something, even when you talk about the AD position. And how many ADs, um, uh, whether it be gender diversity, racial diversity, whatever have you, um, it, it's not a diverse um, position at all. National landscape, I think, has been really well documented. But when you look at the reasons why and the reasons why people are chosen to fulfill that role, and we can't talk about my background, right? I, I, I get it. I'm in law school. I reach out to people, say, hey, what should I do? They say, go to compliance, go to compliance, go to compliance. Well, there, there are not many ADs uh, with compliance backgrounds. And the majority are coming from external backgrounds, mm-hmm. revenue generation, indoor fundraising. So for the last handful of years of my career, and I continue to this day, I've got to continue getting fundraising and external experience to be able to demonstrate to a search committee and or university president that I'm fit to lead that organization from those standpoints of revenue generation and fundraising. So I think, again, as we talk about a pipeline problem made for the NFL, I think in college athletics, we've got to get more individuals involved in that ground level, or at least equip them with the skill set. Um, from revenue generation or fundraising to allow them to be that ideal candidate when the opening comes up. And I think that's part of the reason I got involved in NSF too. Um, Getting more experience on that revenue generation, talking and rubbing elbows with the people that are the best and the brightest um, in those spaces selfishly. I think that makes me a better candidate. It makes me a better professional uh, for Washington state university. So I think you hit on something there in line with the coaching end and the administrative end um, that we're, we're seeing these issues kind of bubble up in a number of phases. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm the textbook for that. I'm um, having started my career in compliance and then spent the last couple of years demonstrating and working in those other areas. Well, Brian, and you can talk to this as well, but you know, the coaches are, are making more and more and more money at, at, you know, the football and basketball level to where 
people on the outside probably go, well, these athletic departments got money to burn, right? But but in in fact, it's the opposite, right? Like you're having to continue to fundraise more and more and get more sponsorships and more ticket sales in order just to um, keep up with the Joneses and, and hiring these coaches and hiring um, the co- the right coaches for you know the ability to compete, right, and keep and, and be relevant. So, can you talk about the, the challenge uh, that that creates? Uh, and that, you know, you need that, that revenue generation side that people maybe don't Absolutely. think about. Yeah, I mean, I think just like a lot of the poor organizations talk about ticket sales being the lifeblood. I mean, I think ticket sales and along with the philanthropy piece, the lifeblood of a college um, athletic department. It, when you talk about kind of where we sit and the narratives that are out there, I mean, and in some ways, I mean, you take a look at our financial model. Yeah, we're paying coaches, football coaches, more and more and more, basketball coaches, more and more and more. I mean, frankly, those are the two sports that bring in the majority, um, if not all, in some cases, of the revenue for the department in terms of what's tied to a specific sport. Um, so, yeah, we, we hem and haw or we um, kind of grit our teeth when we see a football coach get paid three or four mil. Um, but that football program, in some cases, is bringing in 30, 40, 50 million dollars a year. Um, so from a, a financial comparison, if it was just that team, if we were – like Andy and our football team was our only program, our only sport we had to sponsor. In some ways, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think where it gets more complicated is we're supporting all these other sports off of the revenue that a certain number of sports bring in. So our, our tennis program, our men's golf program, our swimming and diving program don't bring any revenue, but we're able to support those student athletes by some of the revenue that a men's basketball a football bring in on top of some of the other department revenue. So our, our financial model is very much different than any other uh, model is out there because college athletics didn't exist anywhere outside the U.S. Uh, we're the only ones with this model, and we're so much different from the pro sports. So I think that's where, as you talk about the narrative and some of the things people say or, or think about, we're just so much different than anything else that, like that. And people, I think a lot of times, want to put college athletics in one of those other buckets, um, but we don't squarely fit. So we've got some unique challenges, um, no doubt about that. And so we'll take some unique solutions um, to remedy those challenges, in my opinion. Well, and, and one more unique challenge that you guys have is, is developing student athletes and helping them transition to the real world, right? And, and having them succeed. You know, you talked about enhancing that student athlete experience, whether it's through the coach or through the people in the, in the athletic department, the university, et cetera. Uh, shameless plug for 20 secrets to success for NCAA <laughs> student athletes who won't go pro. Uh, which Andy was released a little over two years ago now. So, pretty crazy how time flies, but Brian talk a little bit about as we kind of wrap up the episode, um, what and where student athlete development is, is heading um, and what, and what everyone is doing. Yeah. To try and I mean, th- this is the reason why I got into sports, right? I talk about my student athlete experience and want to replicate it. it. It is my why it's my passion. It's my favorite area to work with. I was lucky enough to lead our strategic plan uh, for the university, for the athletic department. We just wrapped that up this past August, so we're kind of rolling into our first year of it. But one of the key points we made in there is we want to offer the most transformational student-athlete experience in the country, bar none. Um, that was a statement we made early on. That was the centerpiece of a lot of our um, discussions, and we started putting some effort into those areas. I mean, we've got a brand-new head of our student-athlete development unit. But one of the things we forget about student-athletes is with their time demands for their sport and their time demands in the classroom, they don't often have enough enough time to get some of these internship opportunities, these externship hours, all those things that some of our, our other students at the university get a chance to take care of. So when they graduate after four or five years, 
what kind of work experience are they able to show? How are they able to show a preparedness to step into that next phase of their life? Um, so our student athlete development staff focuses on just that. One, okay, are there creative solutions to that time management problem that we can create an internship that's maybe a little bit more flexible than what's offered generally to cater to a student athlete's schedule? Can we talk to them about some of the life skills pieces that we do, whether it be the resume, whether it be interview, public speaking? I mean, now you talk about this name, image, and likeness deal. That's nationally getting a lot of publicity. I, I think student athlete development is going to play a huge role in that as far as teaching student athlete how to be an entrepreneur, rolling them in to kind of operate their own business, operate their own brand. I mean, you see so many student athletes now with their own YouTube channel, um, their own speaker series. I mean, I think that's that's the future. That, that's where we're headed. And I think what we do in the student athlete development space can really help us out long term um, when this legislation, if it does come to fruition. Andy? No, I, I totally put an exclamation point on what you just talked about. Uh, I was on a panel at San Jose State a few months ago, and NIL, name and name, came up, and it was literally all about the students in the non-revenue sports going, well, what do we do? And I go, just look around 30 minutes, 30 miles from San Jose State. You're in the middle of the Silicon Valley and you guys will figure it out. And they all went, you know what? You're right. We will figure it out. And I know a few years from now or sooner that many of those men and women who were in the session will have concepts and partnerships in which they will maximize name, image and likeness playing within the complexity yeah. of compliance. So that's how I will exit this incredible conversation with Mike. Uh, we can't thank you enough. And Jake, uh, episode 200 <laughs> is slated for a week. Uh, something like that. Okay. Yeah. We may I'll have to have Brian on every episode 200. Yeah. It'll be yeah. it'll be time enough. There'll be there'll be enough time to, to get him week. on again. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, some power conference by then. You might not even talk to us, but there's zero what? chance that happened. Fellas, I really appreciate you having me on. I've I've been so blessed thus far in my career to have a lot of great people around me. Um, and I include you two in that discussion as well. So thanks again for having me.